Tonight we will be jumping back into Luke chapter 9 and starting in verse 37 to the end of the chapter. Before we jump in there, I just want to make a quick comment on um, an extended kind of statement of Jesus that some of you may have in your Bible if you read the NASB or some translations uh, in verse 55 and 56. Uh, there's a little bit more text there than other translations have, so I'll just explain real quickly. Our best manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts that we have, don't include um, the extended statement from Jesus in those verses. So we think that that portion, which may be just in one of your footnotes in your Bible, may have been added later by a scribe um, and, and not actually by Luke. So it, it may still actually be Jesus' words, um, or it may just, yeah, it could have been something that Jesus, that the, the oral tradition kind of knew that Jesus had said, but after studying all of the ancient copies and stuff that we have, most of the kind of textual critics that we have don't think that that was originally included in Luke. And so most of our English translations don't include it anymore, or maybe, like I said, it's in a footnote. When we see things like that, some discrepancies in translations, it shouldn't decrease our confidence in the, the reliability of the, the transmission of the scriptures that we have. It actually, I think, increases our, our um, holding to that reliability. Um, we see that, that Christian scholars for the centuries have been careful to give us the best available version of the ancient texts that we have. And we're not hiding anything. If we find a better copy or, or, or there's more of a particular copy, then, then we're going to just change to that and say, okay, this was actually closer to the original that was um, given to us. So anyway, don't let that decrease your confidence. It actually gives us more confidence that we're trying to be faithful to what Luke actually gave to us. So these passages that we look at today, hopefully you've already had a chance to read them and retell them and reread them again. Um, but the passage, the, all of the passages really are illustrating, I think, uh, the disciples' inability to understand still who Jesus fully is and therefore they misunderstand what being a disciple of his is um, and especially in regards to this idea of greatness okay that's kind of the theme of these passages as i see it um, and i just want to pray god would you help us to understand as the disciples are uh, in the story here and in history they were grappling with what greatness is and who you are and who we are to be um, we too have uh, some retraining of the way that we think about greatness that has to happen in our lives. So would you, God, just help us with that as we look at this tonight? Um, so first we see Jesus demonstrate his greatness once again by healing this boy with an unclean spirit. Uh, the demon described here is just horrific. Uh, the ESV word that it uses to describe him uh, at the one place in verse uh 39, it shatters him, he says. Um, or maybe some of your translations say it, it, that demon bruises the boy or it destroys him or tortures him. Or some translations even say it mauls him. So it's just horrific to think of what this demon is doing to this poor little child. In verse 41, Jesus' statement to me as I read it seems kind of harsh. He says, oh, faithless and twisted or perverted generation. To me, that helps though describe just the divinity of Jesus. What was it like for him to be on earth as a human, but 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 putting up, so to speak, with, with humans? Um, I don't know if frustration is the right term to, to describe what Jesus was feeling in this. I remember just on Sunday, one of our church members here was describing just being frustrated with God. God, why aren't you doing what I think that you should do? And I think, well, gosh, imagine what Jesus feels as he 
is is putting up on a daily basis with these humans um, the the frustration or for lack of a better term frustration that Jesus may have felt who is he upset with probably everyone there all the humans around maybe the the demons around um, and and the question I think comes up is is why couldn't the disciples cast out this demon because the disciples in verse one of this chapter we saw were given power by Jesus over all demons it literally says and I think the the reality is here and what we can gather just specifically in Luke is that it was somebody or some people were just lacking faith there was a lack of faith oh faithless generation who was lacking faith? If you read the Gospel of Matthew, it seems like it's the disciples that lacked faith. That's why um, when Jesus is asked, hey, why, why couldn't we do this? Jesus said to them, the disciples, he said, it's because of your little faith. If you would have believed with the grain of a mustard seed, you could have done anything. All things are possible. Um, if you read the, the Gospel of Mark, it makes it seem a little bit more like maybe it's the, the father of the boy who is lacking faith. The father actually says, uh, but... He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, would you have compassion on us? And Jesus is like, wait a second, if I can, I can do anything. All things are possible for him who believes. And so the guy's like, okay, cool, I believe, but help my unbelief. So in that case, it seems like it's the father's unbelief. Bottom line, there's a lack of faith on all sides of the equation, all of the human sides of the equation anyway. And presumably, if either the father himself or the disciples themselves had enough faith or much faith at all, then that boy probably could have been healed. Uh, but there's just a lot of faithlessness going on here. Um, another point in this section is just, uh, I think we see that the, the greatness, or greatness in general, is sourced in God or in Christ. Like we put our faith in his ability to do things, in his power, in his greatness. I wonder if the disciples were wanting to accomplish this exorcism in their own power or kind of puffing up their own greatness. Um, I think maybe that's why we read in the book of Mark when Jesus says, hey, this kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything except prayer and fasting. Like, you're not going to be able to do it. Prayer means and fasting. I'm completely dependent on God. I'm powerless. God, I need you to show the greatness of your name. And uh, so maybe that's what's going on here. Obviously, Jesus does show his greatness here in rebuking the demon, and it comes out of the boy. In verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Majesty is the ESV translation. I think a better translation, which most of the others have, is greatness. They were astonished at the greatness of God. Greatness, the root word of that, or majesty, is mega, or megas. Okay, so you can see where great is a great way to put it. Um, and that's going to become important as we look at the themes throughout the rest of it. In the midst of this display of extreme greatness, not only the demon-possessed boy, but also the transfiguration that three of the disciples had witnessed. In the midst of that, it says, while they, in verse 43, while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing. So at that moment, the display of Jesus, or the greatness of Jesus is on display. Jesus then, again, for the second time, predicts his death. Okay, we saw that earlier in this chapter. It's kind of similar to the feeding of the 5,000 starting in verse 10 of this chapter, and it goes from this amazing display of greatness and G and Peter's, you know, uh, confessing of who Jesus is and his greatness as the Messiah, the Son of God, um, but then that's followed by this response of Jesus um, that I'm going to die. So 
maybe the point is that even though Jesus is so great, he's greater than anyone or anything, he says in verse 44, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Son of man, that title for Jesus that that kind of says, yes, he, he is born of, of man, but it's also a, a divine title. And it's this powerful God-man, Jesus, who is going to be killed by mere men. And there's something to be said here about greatness, I think. And that is, Jesus is great, right? He, he's the greatest, but he's going to allow something to himself that doesn't seem like a typical display of greatness. That being death by people less great, much less great than him. So I hope that you can uh, kind of see that there. But the disciples didn't understand what was going on. Well, why didn't they understand? Um, we've said it before, but the, the disciples, um, they would struggle to understand the idea of a dying Messiah until after he was resurrected, okay? I would suggest here on this, based in this little portion, verses 45 or so, um, that the disciples really didn't want to know. They didn't really have ears to hear at this point. It's kind of similar to the parables. A couple chapters ago, Jesus kind of speaks in these enigmas and puzzles to kind of conceal the truth. And it's unless you ask the question, what does this mean? Then you're kind of left in the dark. You don't really understand what's being said. In chapter 8, during Jesus' explanation of the parables, he tells the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Well, in this case, with this information, the disciples didn't didn't ask, what do you mean about this? And I wonder if that's because they really didn't want to know. Because maybe they were too into this idea of, of this great position, this greatness of Jesus, and they're sitting next to this great, the greatest of greats, the Messiah, Jesus, and whatever they thought that that meant for them, they're so into that, they weren't ready to hear and to take in Jesus' actual definition of greatness. And I would ask us the same thing as we look at this passage. Are we willing to hear some hard truth of, about kind of a, a redefinition of greatness? That I promise is going to go against all the forms of greatness that we typically in our flesh would run to. And if we don't want to hear it, because we don't want that kind of greatness, we don't desire it, then, or, or we want a different kind, then we're not going to understand who Jesus is, and we're not going to understand who he wants us to be if we're not willing to hear it. So just ask us, are we willing to hear it? Uh, the next verse, 46, an argument arose among them as to which was the greatest. Again, that word greatest, the megas, right? Or that's the, the root of it there. Which one of us is the greatest? And Jesus, in his answer to that, basically flips greatness on its head and says it's receiving a child. Now, you probably know, but children in the day were very insignificant, right? They were powerless. It's not that they weren't loved or, you know, their parents loved them, but 
there wasn't any respect that was due to them. And you didn't really pay much attention to them, especially if there's more important people around you, right? So to receive a child, which is what Jesus is saying greatness is, is to welcome or care for or to turn your attention to the most insignificant of people. And if you receive a child in that way, then you truly receive who Jesus is and who God is. If you don't pay attention to the least significant, then you don't and you can't really receive Jesus or God because it's the, the insignificant who Jesus pays attention to. And he says, whoever is least, or that's micros <laughs> among you, is the one who is great or megas among you. Uh, the next section, this one's kind of interesting because um, the, the statement made here seems kind of opposite to a phrase that we are a little more familiar with that Jesus used in Luke chapter 11, where he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Well, here in verse 50, he says, the one who is not against you is for you. And it almost sounds opposite. And so I think the context here, like always, is very important to kind of understand the meaning of what, what Jesus and what Luke's trying to communicate here. In the context, remember, we're seeing this power struggle Who's the greatest? Uh, what do you mean the Son of Man is going to die? That doesn't make sense. Or I would assume these disciples are still kind of embarrassed about that demon that they weren't able to cast out. And they're, they're jealous, right, that somebody else is coming along doing something that they couldn't do. And they're like, Jesus, just tell them that they're wrong, right? You see the, the power struggle kind of going on there. And Jesus is just like, hey, it's no problem. They're, they're not working against you. Settle down. Like, why are you getting so worked up? Shouldn't we rejoice that this unnamed exorcist is casting out demons in my name? And again, maybe it was the disciples earlier couldn't cast out that demon earlier because they weren't exalting God's name, but somehow they were trying to exalt themselves, which certainly wouldn't be out of character as we read in these passages around. So a question for us just is, are are we wanting to exalt the name of Jesus in all things as great? Or do we want to exalt ourselves as great? Or another way to put it is, are you okay that others are successful accomplishing the work of God? Maybe that you won't or that you can't. Will you rejoice in that? Because if they're not against you, then they're for you. And they're for Christ. Uh, the next passage uh, in verse 51 is kind of a, a turning in a turning point in the book where Jesus starts heading towards his death in Jerusalem. This all the way through chapter 19. It starts out and says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, this is, it kind of reminds me, hey, this is all going according to God's plan. There's like a, there's a timeline, there's a chart, and Jesus, I think, is into it. The Father's into it. They, they know what's up, and the days grew near, and Jesus knows, hey, now is my time to set my face or be determined to go to Jerusalem. So it kind of strengthens that uh, messianic secret that we've been talking about. Like, sometimes Jesus doesn't want people to tell what's going on. Sometimes he does want them to tell, but he's orchestrating this timeline so he ends up at Jerusalem at the right moment. Um, so he, on the way there, he sends some messengers ahead of him into Samaria to find out where he and the, the boys can kind of couch surf. And, uh, that town they go into doesn't receive those messengers, uh, because Samaritans hate Jews. And these were obviously Jews. If they were headed towards Jerusalem, the, the Jewish capital city, 
And so specifically, James and John are ticked and probably thinking, don't they know who they're dealing with? Do they know who we are? By the way, what should happen when disciples enter a town and they aren't received? We learned just earlier in this chapter, they're to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. Not call down fire on them themselves, but just shake off the, the dust off your feet and you, and you move on. And that speaks against them. But James and John, they want to call down fire from heaven to destroy the town. Um, I wonder why it's, it's James and John specifically. You know, they have this nickname, the Sons of Thunder. Maybe it's just part of their personality. But remember, they were two of the three people that just moments ago or days earlier had just got to see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in his full glory. And they're with him. They're part of his party. And so they are probably feeling pretty high and mighty at this point and want to call down fire on anybody that seems to be against them. And what does Jesus do but rebukes them? He rebukes them. That's the same word rebuke that is used uh, back in verse 42 of what Jesus does to the unclean spirit. This is serious stuff. The way that you guys are talking, no, that is not greatness. That might feel all high and mighty to you. That is not greatness. And then in the last section, um, we see that kind of, we, we see the priority of following Jesus and proclaiming the kingdom, the priority that that should take in anybody's life. Uh, Jesus is on his way to the cross and in really all of the next several chapters, he's, he's teaching and showing, here's, here's the cross, like I just mentioned to you, the cross that you too will have to bear as you follow me. Um, I just think through some of these statements, very difficult statements that he makes, maybe how, how we could put these into our own words. Um, in verse 58, he's, Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, what's he saying? Which This is following literally after Jesus didn't have a place to stay in that Samaritan town, right? But kind of what he's saying there is, hey, will you, are, are you really willing to follow me into homelessness if that's where it takes us? In verse 60, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What's he saying there? Uh, one commentator, Daryl Bach, says, more important than caring for the dead is preaching the offer of life. Okay, so we're, we're seeing priorities here and urgency. And then in verse uh, 62, uh, Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What's he saying there? You, you can't be lukewarm. You can't be one foot in, one foot out. You can't be working for two different masters. You can't be wasting time if you're going to come and follow me. This is all of you. This is urgent. This is number one priority over all priorities. Maybe to summarize just all three of those difficult statements of Jesus there to three different people who thought they may follow him, um, is just that the kingdom of God is a priority over those other priorities that you might typically have in life, like making a home, making funeral arrangements, your kind of sentimental desires to say bye to so-and-so. No, Jesus is the priority. There is an urgency in the matters of the kingdom of God. And so what you thought were priorities before now are taking the back seat to what it means to follow Jesus.
So just overall in this passage, I, I love these sections. Um, the disciples obviously have a misunderstanding of greatness, of their own greatness, but more than that, of the greatness of who Jesus is. And I would say that their views of greatness were kind of out of whack because really they didn't understand the true greatness of Jesus first. Specifically that Jesus, the great one, would lay down his life. Because that's completely upside down, right? That Jesus, the God-man to whom all of the spiritual beings and evil spirits are submitting, that glorious Messiah that Peter, James, and John had seen, the eternal king, that great person, the, the greatest person ever, flips greatness on its head and says greatness is receiving the insignificant child. Uh, greatness sometimes means that you don't have a place to lay your head. And greatness is that, that I would die at the hands of less great men. That's how kingdom greatness looks. We can't think any different than that because the greatest person ever lived that way. We can't go against that. It doesn't make sense. So once we understand these things, and the disciples will go on to understand it, especially after the resurrection, so should we. But once we understand these things about the greatness of Jesus, then gone are the days of these other stories that happen in this section. Gone are the days of the arguments of, well, who's the greatest? Like, and get that lowly little kid out of my sight. You know, that, that disappears. Gone are the days of our, our jealousy of what other people might be doing for the great name of Jesus. Oh, they're not with us. Who cares? Jesus is great and he's being honored here. Um, gone are the days of, of revenge. Well, let's strike them down. No, God will have his vengeance, but true greatness is not operating in that mode, in that mindset. So when we understand the, the true greatness that Jesus is describing, we stop trying to prove ourselves and we start making his name great, I think is what we're getting at here. So if you're ever feeling in your life that, that kind of power struggle, it happens a lot for me, oh, more than I want to even admit, but you feel that power struggle in your life, then let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And let that definition of greatness affect your understanding of what it would mean for you to follow Jesus and his greatness.